the time to do water banking is actually when it's raining, not when it's bone dry. So this is the time to be thinking about it. The aim of the missions is to try and do something in a relatively short period of time. So we're building on things that already exist as well as trying to find the sweet spots where we can utilise capability and ideas that have been developed in other places and adapt them to this problem. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm speaking with Graham Bonnet, Declan Page and Catherine Emerson, who are each scientists who work at the CSIRO and are leading contributors to really exciting research projects that are key to the CSIRO's drought resilience mission that was launched recently. Welcome, Graham, Catherine and Declan. Thanks very much for taking time to speak with me. How's the weather where you are today? Hot, dry, cold? Pretty topical to what we're talking about. Windy. Cold and windy where it is as well. And Catherine, how about you? Well, we've had an earthquake this morning. It's all happening in Melbourne. So you're not exactly getting out in the weather and enjoying it right now. It's green across much of the East Coast this spring and many farmers are looking forward to bumper harvest this summer. But the impact of drought, its impact on people, animals, communities and the environment loom large, especially for those who experienced the recent drought directly and were subject to massive dust and windstorms soil erosion and water insecurity. A number of towns in Queensland and New South Wales had to truck drinking water in. Showers were, for many, a forgotten luxury and farm productivity and livelihoods were severely challenged. The recent drought on the eastern seaboard was the most intense on record and the frequency and severity of drought events here across Australia are predicted to increase and according to some to potentially double from once every 10 years to once every five. As the IPCC's sixth assessment report reiterates, the climate is changing. Massive greenhouse gas mitigation is required to keep warming below 1.5 degrees, something the globe is otherwise on track for by the early 2030s. So here in Australia, it's really key that we're also getting on with the game of smart strategic adaptation strategies. And that's what this episode is all about. Graham, you're currently the leader of the Drought Resilience Mission and Catherine and Declan are key members of your team. Can you lead us in and tell us what the Drought Resilience Mission is and why it's so important? It's one of three focal CSIRO missions launched early in September, I believe. Yeah, that's right. There were some three missions related to agriculture and the Drought Resilience Mission is, as you've said in your in- introduction, concentrating on the uh, the fact that the droughts that we've experienced are likely to get more frequent and potentially more extensive. And so we need some strategies now to help us prepare for the next drought. As you said, it's raining in many places and it'll be a good year this year. That's exactly the time when we should be thinking about the next drought, not when we're in it. And can you tell us more about what the Drought Resilience Mission's key objectives and goals are? I understand it's all about reducing the economic impact of drought by some 30%. So it's about reducing the impacts of drought. Not all of the impacts are easily measured economically, but let's just 
take that. We've got, I mean, we've got a time frame too. So we're trying to do something by the by 2030. So we've set ourselves a relatively short time frame to mm. sort of impress upon the urgency of the situation. So that means that it's going to have to be a mixture of things under development and well development and new and new things. We've taken the figure of 30% as a significant target to to do something meaningful. Is a figure where we've we've improved sort of productivity in the past by 30%, but over a much longer period. So we're, we're trying to actually accelerate the way we're doing it. And um, there are several ways that we're doing that that we'll, 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 we'll talk about as we go along. Mm-hmm. I spoke recently with Professor Stone, a climate scientist who I imagine you know, and he highlighted that Australia has long had the highest rainfall variability on Earth and that climate change coming on top of that intensifies both the variability and the potential for extreme change. He also said that we know the next drought is coming at any time, anywhere, and that there are different ways of thinking about or or categorising drought and its impacts and planning for them. He outlined four to five different types of drought, which I might just dot point. He spoke about them as meteorological, agricultural, hydrological, economic for communities and environmental in terms of environmental flows. Through that sort of above lens or those four or five categories, Graham, would you like to comment on how you, your colleagues and CSIRO arrive at the sort of indicative figure of 30% to reduce the economic impact of drought? By thirty percent by twenty thirty. So, like I said, it's a it's a it's a stretch objective objective rather than a a forensically derived one. <laughs> we go through some of the types of drought that you've talked about there. The, the meteorological drought is is where it all starts, and that generally is talked about as a prolonged or extended period of time that's drier than normal. So drier than normal conditions, and depending on what's happened before. And what happens afterwards, of course, depends whether you then get further effects from that. So the meteorological drought is probably the hardest one to deal with. There are things that can be done, but um, in, in general, that's that's your starting point. If it rains, it rains. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And like I say, there are you know, some people think we can do things about that, but that's the starting point. So you then go through to, as you described, an agricultural drought where those impacts are being felt on agriculture through a drying soil and the impact that's having on on plants. The other way, um, a hydrological drought, as you described it, can play out in agriculture is when there's less runoff, less stream flow, less storage of water in reservoirs. And so consequently, there's less water available for irrigation. But the the depth of the agricultural and the hydrological drought can depend on the soil water status prior to that period of drought. So if it was sort of dry-ish as you went into that prolonged period, you're going to have a worse outcome than if it was started off relatively wet after a period of high rainfall, but relatively low temperatures. One of the things, of course, that's going to happen, as you described, under a changing climate is that it will be warmer. And so we will have higher rates of potential evaporation and and demand on, on water. Soils will generally be drier. And so that leads to the the notion that there's likely to be less runoff because more of the water that falls will actually be required to replenish what's in the in the soil. Then the other kinds of droughts you talked about there are economic. So you have a bad season agriculturally, there's less income and that can be then played out on the rest of society. There's also the direct uh, effects on communities through household and drinking water, and you can talk to Declan about that a bit more later on. And then the environmental drought is kind of similar to an agricultural drought, but you can think about that on the 
uh, on the native vegetation, but in both of an environmental drought and an agricultural drought, you'd also get then the potential for loss of uh, vegetation, reduced ground cover, which can lead to things like dust storms, which I'll talk to Catherine about later on. So one of the earlier pieces of work that we've been doing is actually trying to characterise as well as we can the different types of impact that drought is going to have mm. and where we can try and put those into an economic framework and hopefully we'll release that piece of work 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 soon but that's a, a work that's been done so there's many different types of impact and we're trying to work out where we can have our, our, our biggest impact on those uh, on those negative impacts where, where can we um, make the biggest difference so whilst we've whilst we've launched we don't have all the answers mapped out yet and the beauty of the approach we're taking is that um, we can work with others to develop new lines of inquiry over time as well yeah now that's exciting isn't it when you put out the call and see um the other big questions that other knowledgeable people from other areas come back to you with. So it's really a bit of a mix of strategies to tackle the above types of drought, which are obviously all interrelated uh, in different ways. And some of what you do will be focusing on tools and some of them presumably focusing on sort of more uh, strategic or meta-level research and information sets to inform policy and so forth. Would you like to highlight one or two of the key projects in addition to the atmospheric dust modelling and managed aquifer recharge uh, work that Catherine and Declan are both respectively working on and that we'll be talking about later? Would you like to just highlight or flag one or two other projects that are part of the mission? Yeah. There's three areas that we're trying to target. One is is what can we do to help people on farm? And there's a, a range of on-farm interventions that we're trying to work our way through. Some of those already exist and some of them we're trying to build on. But a different kind of strategy there that we're also um, trying to work on is how we can help people develop other risk-sharing strategies. Now, there's a lot of work being gone on around insurance and other other risk-sharing strategies that haven't been particularly well taken up. What we're exploring in that uh, area is trying to use our um, analytics and understanding of variations and spatial variations of crops to ask ourselves the question, who might benefit from things like yield uh, insurance and how we actually uh, help people think their way through that and do the analytics for that. So that's something that we're we're now trying to um, take out to people and and have some uh, conversations around. So that's on top of the kinds of um, strategies to um, improve our productivity on farm through agronomic interventions, like making better use of the water that is available to us. And then there's a whole range of, of, of those, those sorts of activities, as well as the work that you'll talk to Declan around in the community space. We're working with um, teams in CSIRO and, and people around the country to try and set up um, some structures around how communities might go through a planning process to improve their drought resilience, utilising the assets that they have in, in, in their region and utilising what the appetite is amongst local people to do that. So that's another area where we're, we're working on things there. And then in the space of trying to um, underpin policy, we're working with the uh, Future Drought Fund on it and the Bureau of Meteorology on its climate services for agriculture, where we're trying to um, help people see the historical, the current and the future climate mm. in the same tool and so understand what changes have happened recently um, so they can see what level of adaptation they've had to make already and give them a hint into the future about what's likely to be there so that they can start thinking through adaptations that they might have to make into the future 
or in some cases, do we have to start thinking about doing things very differently, not just adapting what we are doing? So there, there's some examples there in each of those areas. That, that's really fascinating. So the, the projects around process, working with communities, is that, you know, to sort of do the big picture, almost rapid, I don't know, rural appraisal, or I'm sure it's much more sophisticated than that. Who are you doing that with? Is that largely through the Future Drought Fund, Drought Resilience Hubs or regional councils? Or We have been um, talking to grower groups, regional councils, and we're now talking to the Future, future Drought Fund as, as well, but that, that's early days with, with them at the moment. So on balance, the Drought Resilience Mission covers a huge spectrum of really high-level sort of strategic tools and information through to in-community, on-farm, potential tools and productivity, shorter-term projects and focus. Is that a fair summary? <laughs> That's a fair comment, yeah. With, with um, The aim of the missions is to try and do something in a relatively short period of time. So we're building on things that already exist as well as trying to find the sweet spots where we can utilise capability and ideas that have been developed in other places and adapt them to this to this problem. And all with the goal of reducing the economic impacts of drought by some 30% by 2030. It's pretty ambitious. It's a great goal, isn't it? It is, but I reiterate that not all of the impacts are necessarily directly and immediately economic. Some of them are actually broader than that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that leads us into Spotlight or perhaps talk about two especially really important research projects that are part of the mix of the Drought Resilience Mission's new research program. Catherine, (laughs) you're a principal research scientist with CSIRO, an expert in air quality modelling and one of the lead authors, I think you said, for the State of the Environment Report. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And as part of the Drought Resilience Mission, you're leading a project that's all about atmospheric dust modelling. Can you tell us about the project and provide an overview of what it involves and what it aims to do? Yeah, so, I mean, my background is in building air quality models. So we've got a sort of rich history of of forecasting things like smoke and summertime smog and and even pollen. And so what we thought, as Graham said, because we've already got this tool, that it would be interesting to sort of build atmospheric dust into into that model I mean, from my point of view, from looking at the sort of impacts on human health, you know, concentrations of in the air for human health. But in order to work out what the atmospheric concentration of dust is, we need to work out what the source of that dust is. So where is it coming from? What the strength of that emission into the air is? So so this is where, you know, um, soil coming from those dry paddocks in, in regional areas, we need to be able to calculate that strength. Um, the source strength um, in order to work out how much is in the atmosphere. So then this sort of trade-off in the in the benefits for the drought mission is that yes, we can we can work out where that soil is coming from, how much soil is being um, lost, uh, and where it's ending up, where is it being deposited? Um, is it going quite a long way? Is it being blown, you know, all the way into sort of Victoria and Sydney? Who who's who's gaining? So you'll actually be able to measure where it's come from and where it landed. Yes. Correct. That's amazing. But I mean, there's all sorts of other sort of benefits, I suppose, from from the model. I mean, we know from that big Sydney dust storm in 2009 that uh, there was an estimated, I think it was $300 million worth of costs, which were due to clean up. I mean, so there's in terms of, you know, other things in terms of dust landing on surfaces, cleaning of um, solar, you know, voltaic cells for power generation. Uh, dust in the air, which is causing problems for visibility, for so transport and air travel, um, and also just you know you, you lose the 
um, the sort of human well-being aspect too. If you're sort of in the middle of a, a dust storm, it's 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 not great. Yeah, no, absolutely. So in in a funny way, just reiterating some of those points you've just made, we pretty much all saw dust, huge dust storms wherever we lived during the recent drought. So t- tell us a little bit more about why it's such an important project because it is. <laughs> what does the dust modelling project mean or offer specifically for farmers, for policymakers, and perhaps everyday Australians? So what we can do is. We've done a 15-year run all the way back to 2005. So this really lets us know what that sort of long-term average picture of, of dust looks like over the whole of Australia. So then we can, uh, in future, then be able to say, well, look, you know, 2022 is going to be either more dusty or less dusty um, for particular uh, areas than that, the long-term average. But and also doing that that 15-year year run, it sort of made us see that there was the millennium drought and coming out of the millennium drought and which parts of Australia were, were impacted then. And then we've also seen sort of since 2015 areas of New South Wales and, and South Australia that are heading back into drought. Um, you know, since 2015, it's steadily getting more and more dusty. And I think 2019 in, in New South Wales, that some of the measurements there, they said were the dustiest on record. Mm. So in what way or for what areas of policy or other impact do you see it most directly contributing to, perhaps through the lens of medium to longer term? And I'm thinking perhaps of things like the National Soil Strategy, where obviously dust, desertification, storm, dust storm management is really important for agricultural productivity and the idea of hotspots of erosion or for cropping, good or bad, and also for public health, environmental restoration hotspots. Are they sorts of layers or lenses that you're all that that are integral to the to the model yes we've been able to um, overlay on top of our sort of dust erosion maps um, the agriculturally productive region so that we can look at those hot spots um, in terms of you know fertile soil that's being lost and we've seen you know the Malay region um, and uh, regions of um, sort of central to eastern New South Wales which are, are impacted and and regions in Western Australia uh, also, which are hotspots of productive land which are being lost. So policymakers can can target those areas for mitigation actions. And one of those mitigation actions might be um, an increase in ground cover. And because it's a model, we can we can do interesting uh, tests with it. We can increase the ground cover by ten percent to, to try and work out how much dust that will save or or, you know, take 10% of the ground cover away and, and see what, what impacts uh, those are. But we can do all that before anyone spends any money on, the, you know, on ground cover or switching crops. We can just have a, a play around, if you like, and, and see what the uh, the impacts are of those actions. Well, that's amazing. So you spoke about productive lands there. Are you also looking at areas that are specific perhaps to NRM or natural resource management or parklands management and forestry and so forth, you know, because certainly on the East Coast after the bushfires, so many areas prone to erosion and through water and dust. Are you just focusing on agricultural lands or is it very much the whole landscape? We are modelling the whole of Australia at the moment at uh, 10 kilometres resolution. Um, We do have the ability to zoom in to... Mm -hmm. So areas of interest um, haven't done that yet. We're, we're sort of still in the sort of testing and evaluation mode. But one of the things we want to do in future is, you know, we've done all this hind casting, if you like. One of the aims of the project is to look at some of our uh, projections into sort of 2022 up to 2030. 
And of course, there are different projections. Some will be, you know, wetter than, than others. So we can, we've got a range, if you like, of different futures. But we can then use those to assess what the, the coming season's uh, dust impacts will be out to sort of 20, 25, 2030 20, 30, and, and, and offer those up as a, a sort of forecast. I was going to ask you a question about whether it looks backwards and forwards, and you've just answered that. And for communities and farmers, people generally, how fine-grained is the information it may provide? I think you just mentioned, is it sort of within 10 kilometres? It is quite fine-grained. I mean, we could go finer than that, but then I wonder, you know, would that be meaningful? Because droughts tend to be quite widespread. So if you have farm A next to farm B, you know, their, their experiences aren't going to be that different. And I suppose if farm B plants you know 50 percent extra ground cover you know that that farm might still be um, encased in dust from from their neighbors so 10 kilometers is 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 quite a high resolution um, in terms of, of air quality modeling and also it's just three-dimensional so we've got the atmosphere all the way up to about sort of 11 kilometers so it's um it's quite a, a computational undertaking <laughs> That sounds pretty amazing. Um, I was going to ask you on that, what sort of information does the model incorporate that might that it can readily picture? And I was thinking of things like when we spoke a little bit earlier, uh, you mentioned things that, you know, some of the parameters that go into the model include things like soil type, ground cover, soil moisture levels, anything else you'd like to highlight or that, you know, people can, everyday lay people like me can get their head around in terms of what the model's taking on board? Yeah, so our, our main parameters are the soil moisture, particularly in that surface layer and how dry that is. Temperature, so one of our big inputs is the meteorology. So we need things like wind speed, wind direction, um, temperature and, and the precipitation too. We need to know whether the dust is going to be rained out, how far it's going to travel. So meteorology is a big part of, of the input. For ground cover, um, we can get these things from satellites. So we can look at the changes on a quite a, a high temporal resolution. So not just monthly, we can look at changes you know, weekly and, and how that goes. Soil type, I mean, that doesn't change all that frequently. That's a, you know, whether your soil is clay or sandy, um, that, that's a pretty pretty constant. Yeah, but the differences between different soil types must be quite significant. Yes, this is true. Yeah. And um, so the model as it is running now, like it, it can capture all that incredible information about really recent change, as you say, of ground cover, including impacts of the bushfires and impacts of the drought. So it's, it's a very live tool. Is that right? It is. Yeah. So we, I mean, as I said at the beginning, we do a lot of smoke forecasting. So in terms of health, we can we can predict hourly changes in in atmospheric concentrations and and this is being relayed to all the jurisdictions in terms of um, people being aware of their own exposure to air pollutants. Dust is one of them. Yeah, no, fascinating. And Catherine, I have to ask you because it was in the media last week. Were you part of the team or the project that uh, did the work about? the impact of the bushfires and the uh, smoke and iron content in the smoke landing in the Pacific and feeding algae and all that sort of stuff? I know the paper you were talking about, so no, I wasn't an author on that, but there were others in CSIRO, um, Oceans and Atmosphere, that were, yes. 
Mm. It's a little bit of good news out of a lot of bad news there. Yes. Thanks, Catherine. What you're doing is really inspiring. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Declan, um, I'm originally from northern New South Wales, so I'm personally really fascinated by your work that has a focus on that region in the upper Murray-Darling Basin in the Drought Resilience Mission. You're a research scientist at CSIRO in the Groundwater Systems Team. You are an international research leader in water banking and recycling via aquifers with CSIRO, and your work has been fundamental to development of the Australian MAR guidelines, which we'll talk about what that means, and part of the National Water Quality Management Strategy. Is that right? That's right, yep. Declan, can you lead us in and describe what managed aquifer recharge is and how it relates to water banking and perhaps for someone like me, not deeply familiar with water catchments or aquifers? Sure. So managed aquifer recharge is really the the more technical term, the one I'd use technically, but Mm -hmm. look, water banking is the one we use public facing Mm. these days. And the concept is, is pretty simple. You take water when it's available, readily available, put it into your bank account and then recover it again when you need it. So in this case, the bank account happens to be an underground storage called an aquifer. It's been done in Australia since about the 1960s, started off in places like um, in Queensland, like in the Burdekin Valley there. But it's now also used in places like Perth for the drinking water supply, in Adelaide for municipal irrigation, many councils use it, as well as individual farms. And there's now um, schemes and investigations in all states and territories. So exciting. I assume it offers all sorts of benefits that include being underground, no evaporation loss, little algae and few mosquitoes. Is that right? That's right. So, I mean, many surface water storages can be quite inefficient. So looking at farm dams across the Murray-Darling Basin, for example, have um, have about a 40% loss rate per year. Some of the really big shallow storages like Medindy Lakes also have about a 40% loss rate. Um, so when you store the water in the underground, um, in an aquifer, of course, there's not much evaporation going on. There's also no algal growth and there's no problems, nuisance problems such as with mosquitoes. That doesn't mean you get all the water back, but you can certainly do better than 40% of the evaporation rate. That is such a fascinating figure to hold on to because so many people get excited about big dam building and you know, why aren't we doing more of it? But actually in a changing climate, evaporation rates have always been, but are increasingly really significant, aren't they? So why is managed aquifer recharge, MAR, so important or so exciting to help build drought resilience, especially for rural and remote communities who faced incredible water shortages during the recent drought? Well, I mean, managed aquifer recharge or or water banking is, is really just another form of storage. So much like surface water storage or big dams, as you talked about before, this is another another way of storing water in the, in the underground. Big dams and aquifer recharge actually go really well together. They're very complementary. So while a big dam might be able to capture a really big flood, mm-hmm. um, you need to then trickle feed it to be able to get it into the subsurface. So using them both together in what's called conjunctive use of surface and groundwater is really a way to maximise storage. And by maximising storage, of course, you've got a lot of water banked away for a sunny day or a drought day. And in that way, it provides a resilience. Now, you can use all different water sources. So we've used things like treated wastewater, urban stormwater, industrial water from things like coal seam gas operations. Overseas, they use things like even reverse osmosis treated water, places like Israel. Um, but you can also use things like um, flood water or natural waters. And that's really the focal point at the moment that I'm looking into for agricultural water supplies. Internationally, that's done a lot already in places like Arizona and Idaho and the United States. But here in Australia, we haven't picked it up really to its full potential yet, and hence this is the reason why it's, a, I guess, a, a field of research we're trying to open up. It's really exciting because it brings together the extreme events of drought and the extreme events of really big floods to sort of capitalise on capturing, you know, the big flood events, as you say, for for, for, for resilience for a later day. That's 
So exciting. And what does day zero mean? I know many Australian rural and remote towns faced day zero during the most recent drought in 2019 and 20. Can you tell us about what it means and where and where those towns were? Sure. So uh, day zero refers to the day when um, your municipal or your town water supply runs out of water. So it was first it was first termed uh, for Cape Town, I think, in 2018. You might have correct me on that. Mm-hmm. When they nearly ran out of water, and that's a fairly a multi-million population town. I don't know in my head how many people is there. I mean, running out of water in a town is a catastrophe. Mm. Effectively, people have to walk away. So day zero did occur here for a couple of towns. So during the last drought, um, some some towns in yeah, Queensland, so I think places like Stanthorpe, had to truck in water. They actually ran out of water. The countdown really is how many days left or how much time do you have left until your urban water supply fails. And so over the last drought, I mean, a couple of towns certainly ran out of water. There's ones in SA here, some Indigenous communities that also ran out of water. The majority didn't. They were saved in the nick of time by rain. But some of them had three months left, six months left, a year left. And at that point, people start getting a bit edgy and have to really start scrambling, what can we do to maintain water supplies? And I mean, things like water carting come to mind. So training, putting water on a train. That's, I mean, places like Dubbo had that in their drought plan. That can be very expensive. And Gyra and Stanthorpe and... That's right. Um, putting in trucks as well. It's, it's massively expensive, multi-millions per day to keep those towns alive. So a bit of investment now to really build that resilience is, you know, money in the bank. Mm. I used to live in Cape Town and I have good friends who still live there and I, they were keeping me well posted on what was happening during uh, the water shortage. And it was literally down to 10 or 50 litres per person per day by bucket. And some people are still using the water out of their showers through grey water systems and some people have completely forgotten already. But it was a seriously big deal and it went on for a very long period of time. So MAR is super important for water security and indeed for human rights to water really, isn't it? So are towns and communities in the Murray-Darling Basin especially likely to benefit from MAR and are there particular towns you're focusing on for the drought resilience mission research work that you're doing? Is that right? You're focusing in the upper... Murray Darling? I'm interested in all of Australia for the record, but like we've had a couple of interesting um, examples where we've put, um, I guess, proposals to townships. We did a study last year looking at what sort of, what's the scale of the opportunity in terms of water banking in the Murray Darling Basin as a whole. And it comes to about four kilometres cubic of storage potential. So that's about eight Sydney harbours worth of water. You might say, is that a lot? Is that not much? That's about 12% of total surface water storage in a basin. So that's, that's quite a few reservoirs that don't need to be built that are just sitting there ready to be filled. Wow. So, I mean, they don't exist everywhere, of course, and some of them are easier to get to than others. And there are, you know, there's complexities. So places like South Australia, we have a lot of salty groundwater, so you can't use those areas. And, you know, there are some complexities. But, yeah, we've approached a couple of towns. We looked at uh, Dubbo firstly, as well as uh, Mm. uh, more recently, Moree. And many of the towns in those areas have traditionally used groundwater. And by using groundwater, they've actually created that space or that opportunity to store water. So a lot of the agricultural areas as well that use groundwater, by using groundwater for decades, have again created that room in the aquifer to be able to store water or bank water for the future. And it's these areas, I guess, that present really easy, low-hanging fruit in terms of aquifer recharge. You can go some very complicated systems. Um, So, for example, Perth uses treated wastewater from their rather than sending it to the marine outfall, injects it into an aquifer several hundred metres deep. And then it takes, I mean, they treat it with reverse osmosis and and all the water treatment necessary to produce beyond drinking water. So it takes 50 years to migrate to where it needs to go before they extract it. But that's an example, I guess, of a very high-end system. Can you just repeat or elaborate on that point about 50 years? Sure. So in the example of Perth, and this is Perth specific, so 
they take treated wastewater from their municipal outfall, treat it, then they treat it with reverse osmosis and a number of other high-end advanced water treatments. Then they inject it into the aquifer and they inject it such that where they recover the water from a bore field, it takes 50 years from the point of injection where it sucks across underneath in the subsurface to where it's recovered again and really put it put back into the drinking water supply. So that 50 years is also mm. beneficial and that's sort of seen as a bit of a, a naturalization of the wastewater in that sense. So people don't think of it as wastewater anymore. It loses that say stigma of wastewater and it's just seen mm. as water or groundwater. So it's been very yeah, it's been easy to get the public behind it, I guess. And you know, there's been a lot of support for the system. It's also cheaper than date than desalination. And for that reason, uh Perth has continued to invest in that technology. So interesting what you say about Areas like Dubbo and Moree, where the groundwater has already uh, accessed at, at at length or in in substantial quantities, that it creates room to 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 particularly target for for recharge. That's um, a real opportunity, isn't it? I guess normally drawdown is seen as a negative thing. That's right, um, in the sense of overexploitation of groundwater resources. But on the converse, you can see it as, as a storage opportunity. Uh, aqua recharge is a way of bringing those groundwater systems back into equilibrium. I think it's uh, the statistics are something like for every millimetre decline in in rainfall, you get about a double decline of that in recharge. So we're actually going backwards if we don't do anything in many of our systems anyway. So really, just just to adequately manage our groundwater resources, we would need to either pull back on some of the demand that they have or increase recharge. They're the only two things that you can really do. So this is a bit off field to the quest to the to the immediate topic we're talking about, but what is the state of play in terms of the, the drawdown on our aquifers? Is it is it really declining? Oh, I think you'd have to leave that for another episode, uh, Anthea. Yeah, we have groundwater people who are very well versed in that and would do a better job than me. And yes, and it's probably a little bit controversial. Thank you for that, Declan. Okay, so what are the key hydrological or other features that can make a town or community the best prospect, if you like, for MRA? Or put another way, are there particular river or aquifer areas in Australia that are most suited? to MAR? Sure. I can give you five key, key principles that you might want to use to, for a successful successful scheme. So you need to have a supply of water, right? That's probably one of the biggest constraints of many of these schemes. <laughs> People always think, where, what's, where are you going to get more water from? So in places, you, know, you need to actually have that supply. You need to have a place to store the water and aquifers with suitable characteristics to store the water. So some places like Darwin, their aquifers are what's called a fill and spill system. So the water goes in and then just spills out again. Won't, the aquifer won't hold the water. Yeah. Other aquifers like thinking around uh, South Australia on the border there in the Mallee region, uh, very brackish groundwater. So if you were to put water, your recharged water in there, it's gonna, you're going to get it salty coming back out. You need to have an ongoing demand for the water. So there's a lot of schemes that get put in. There's not a lot of thought put into things like demand and who's going to pay for it and all those tricky questions. And really, I mean, I, I see schemes as beneficiaries should be the ones ultimately who, who uh, you know, should, should pay for the operations of the schemes. You need to have a location to put these schemes. So mindful that there are other considerations, things like groundwater dependent ecosystems, like wetlands and things like that, that you can potentially impact if by manipulating groundwater levels. Obviously, if you put it too close to someone's town, you may also risk flooding their basement. So there are considerations for that. And lastly, you need a competent organisation uh, with a long-term human and financial capital to be able to run such a scheme. They're, they're the five things. In a recent media release, Graham said that the technology for water banking is really well known. It's the analysis of exactly where the aquifers are the right sort and in close enough proximity to the town where you can move water along river channels 
to where you want to store the water and infiltrate it into the ground in such a way that it can be stored is part of the the mapping challenge, I suppose. Is that right? Uh, well, a lot of those the, the um, schemes have been well mapped out now, I guess, of, of where you can mm -hmm. store water. So the alluvial aquifers, we look at those alluvial systems because they're generally the cheapest. They're the ones immediately below your feet. You can though target aquifers much deeper, several hundred metres, but it comes at a cost of the cost of injecting under sometimes under pressure and then recovering again. There are a number of uh, barriers in terms of policy and regulatory issues, as well as fully understanding the economics and how they would interact with things like the water market. If you were, for example, to buy and purchase water for recharge. Okay, so I was going to ask you, what is the outlook for MAR going forward? Do you think it will be embraced as increasingly important for rural? town water security vis-a-vis um, -vis other water recycling options like you know smaller scale grey water storm water such as they might be because it is a really exciting way to capture water from other extreme events isn't it is there a lot of interest in it everyone thinks it's a good idea certainly um but it's just one tool in terms of the water security portfolio and it needs to be looked at vis-a-vis -vis every other option it's just a method whether it's desal or a big dam or mm -hmm. demand management which is probably the least interesting kind of uh, the, the most effective but the least the least exciting they're all just methods of of pathways to water security and that's i guess it's 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 complicated that it interacts with a number of different spheres so it's, it's surface water and groundwater and 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 a whole heap of different i guess agencies that look at it epa and public health but i mean it can be done and is done very successfully overseas and in terms of adaptation strategies it perhaps like few of the others, tackles the extreme events of drought and of flood together. So that's really exciting, isn't it? Yeah, you can sort of move water through time and space, you could say, to, when, to where it's needed. Yeah, okay. And so farmers will also prospectively benefit from MAR? Certainly it can be done at different scales. So there are examples of farm level, farm level schemes already in existence in Australia. Mindaroo and Mindaroo and WA does it. Uh, there's also several uh, vineyard farmers that ran in Langhorn Creek in South Australia where it's done at a farm, at an individual farm scale. So, yeah, we've done it at that municipal scale or even at, even at a basin scale. And Declan, you were involved in developing the guidelines for MAR for the National Water Commission, I think it was. So looking to the future, you've already mentioned a few, but are there particular obstacles to MAR being used for rural and or remote and rural towns or is it just a matter of getting some momentum, much bigger momentum behind it? There are some, I guess, some regulatory challenges, you could say, um, and policy challenges that would need to be addressed at state level. And each state is quite different and, and has a different level of implementation, you could say. The good news is, though, every state wants to, wants to do water banking and it's just, I guess, helping them on their journey to do it. So places where we have been very active, like Adelaide and Perth, are now, um, you know, they're, they're going gangbusters. Other, other states haven't had that, that opportunity. And what we really like to see is some really well-documented well-resourced demonstration schemes, schemes that people can look at, see how they work, that are transparent, that, that everyone's, everyone can be a partner of. And that really can demonstrate the benefits that these schemes can generate. And that's, I think, a key to moving forward. Is that part of the reason why you're focusing on the Murray-Darling and Northern New South Wales, to get some good case studies up? I would like to very much like to see some. I mean, I think it's using things like the water market is something I think very very interesting. People ask, mm. oh, you're not just going to take more water from the river and absolutely not implying that. The whole point of a water market is to take water from low value uses and use them, you know, you go to the highest value use in the market. And certainly things like town water supply is a high value use. And we've seen the, the cost of water security is often 10 times the cost of normal supply. So you've seen that the investment in places like capital cities around Australia, where they we're happy to build desal plants and then probably turn them off. So is that sort of cost benefit study for 
you know, the relative benefits vis-a-vis -vis different users, farmers and or high value town use. Is that a part of your project? I think that's a, a central thing that needs to be done um, and needs to be done with multiple stakeholders so we get a great agreement on that. I'm not an economist, I have to stress, and I always find economists, they don't seem to always agree. And that's why I need to get a very broad church, you could say, of people who largely can see and, and agree upon the framework that's of how these schemes are evaluated. So once and for all, we can we can decide if that's suitable for any given location. Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask you, how can we, you know, general people like me or people from any and many walks of life get behind MAR or put another way to support your work and the work that MAR, you know, the role that it could play? If you or any of your listeners are interested in water banking, I mean, either for your own towns where you live or mm -hmm. perhaps you have a farm or run a, I don't know, a horticultural enterprise, and certainly please do get in touch. These are schemes we'd like to see up at different scales. Um, and different, I guess, different types of schemes because you can use different aquifers for different uses and they all have their, I guess, their sweet spot, you could say. Yeah. Okay. So the Drought Resilience Mission, I think in the media release that went with its launch in early September, did speak about looking for new collaborators, new partners, new investors for different parts of the program. And MAR is just one of them, but a really exciting one. So Here's a call out for that. You're, you know, the the program's established, the research program's established, but you're looking for more partners, and there's always the opportunity for more case studies and site specific uh, research projects. Is that right? Well, we need we need pioneers and partners to, to really make this go. The technical side's not that hard, and CSRO can help with the research. Yeah. But when when someone who wants to operate it and wants to basically people who want to invest in their own water security and resilience. Catherine, is that the same for your project? Are you looking for more partners for your project, or are you pretty well? Sorted. I don't know about sorted. I mean, my focus is on, on building a tool for use. There are others in the drought mission that are looking for, you know, end users of that and, and stakeholders. Declan and, and Catherine's projects really um, uh, are being kicked off by doing some underpinning work. So in Declan's case, he had the map of the Murray-Darling Basin where the opportunities were and that encouraged people to come and talk to us because they could see there might be an opportunity in their area. Yeah. Similarly with Catherine's historical dust maps, we're now using that to try and engage people so that they can actually help themselves develop and focus on where those hotspots are that she talked about to develop their local strategies about how they might go about mitigating it. So in, in both these cases, we've started off with trying to develop something as an engagement tool. And now we're in the process of trying to engage with others to, to, to work out how they might be able to use these activities as well as us having ideas about how they might be used. Yeah, and take them to a further level of depth and application. I mean, Catherine's work is amazing from... Um, you know, from an agricultural and an M and an MRM perspective, but also, obviously, you know, public health and urban management, which no doubt she's already very engaged with. Like it's incredibly rich tool. So that's so exciting. Thank you, Catherine and Declan. Graham, Catherine and Declan, thank you all very much for taking time to um, speak and to share with me. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you and, and all power to you for what you do. Just as we head towards a bit of a wrap-up, I was wondering if each of you or, or Graham, in particular, if you might have any further final comments, reflections or call-outs that you might like to make. Yeah, I'll start. I think one of the things that we probably haven't emphasised enough is that a lot of what we're doing here has application throughout the cycles of drought and plentiful water, if you like. We tend to focus on the drought years, but the overarching message from mm. the future climate is that certainly across southern Australia, there's going to be less water available full stop. Many of the things that we're working on have applications in, in most years. In every year, we're trying to get the most we can out of the water that's available. And some of the 
activities like the, the, the water banking, you, you need to be thinking about that in the good years as well as the bad years in order to make that work. Similarly, in, in Catherine's work, we can see uh, the, the changes between the good years and the bad years and how that, how that works. So that gives us insights into how if we could come up with ways of managing ground cover differently or better. And, that, and that's hard in the, in the worst years, right? So when there's no water, there's no water and it, it's difficult. But people are imaginative and, and if they can identify where the problems are, then they'll come up with solutions. So we are focusing on trying to mitigate the impacts of drought, but that was going to be done through activities throughout the, the cycle of years. Thanks for that, Graham. Declan, do you have any final comments? Or oh, I'd only echo Graham's and say that the time to do water banking is actually when it's raining, not when it's bone dry. So this is the time to be thinking about it. Yeah. And Catherine, anything further from you? Oh, I just think I'd like to wrap up by saying it's it's just really good fun to work on a project that can make some real differences. And I hope it, it does make a difference that we can reduce dust and, you know, reduce the impacts of drought in, in, in the future. And as you say, you'll be... You'll be monitoring and telling the story about how ground cover makes a difference, but also presumably how bushlands and forest lands, as they recover, what sort of difference they're making to those three-dimensional systems which affect dust and dust movement. Is that right? Yes, and, of course, with the bushfires that have gone through, of course, you know, that also impacts the the dust um, emission to the atmosphere too. Thank you all very, very much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. The CSIRO Drought Resilience Mission was launched on the 9th of September. Shortly after, incidentally, the winners of the Living Memory National Photographic Portrait Prize 2021 that were announced at the National Portrait Gallery in a necessarily COVID live-streamed event. The top award-winning prize was of a photo of a lone farmer immersed in a dust storm titled Drought Story, a portrait by Sydney photographer Joel Prattley. It captured... David Kalish in the midst of an unexpected dust storm on his 1,000-acre farm in Forbes, New South Wales. Prattley said it reflected the resilience of a man pushed to the limits by an unforgiving climate. David's composure during the storm was surreal because he's just so used to it. For me, it was like being on Mars. And researchers, people like Graham, Catherine and Declan, are at the forefront of enabling positive change and adaptation. So huge thanks to them. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Anthea. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.